This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Pete Tantillo, CFO of Rapid Ratings, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leadership Podcast. This is episode 616. Finance can be way too much of an insulated job, and no one really gave me this advice in a finance world. It is a highly internally focused organization. And you lose as an investor, if you want to be a great investor, if you want to be a great business person in a finance role, you have to go and meet with customers. You have, you have to get over that insecurity and it will inform you to be a better CFO, to go out and be with customers. It'll be a, inform you to be a better leader, a better business and operational partner. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Ashim Gupta, CFO of UiPath. After 20 years at General Electric, serving in senior finance and operational roles, Ashim Gupta was not the most obvious candidate to enter the CFO office at UiPath. A fast-growing mid-sized firm specializing in robotics process automation. However, after joining the firm as UiPath's chief customer success officer, Ashim brought his past finance experience to bear, opening the finance leadership door. We speak to Ashim about his strong customer orientation and the finance and customer intersect at UiPath after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Ashim Gupta, CFO of UiPath. Ashim, welcome. Thanks, Jack. Nice to be here. Ashim, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask our, our guests to look back for us and share some of those experiences they feel prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, I started my journey luckily with uh, GE's financial management program. And my first assignment was probably something that shaped me for the rest of my career. Um, literally my first day. My job was taking out the daily sales report, they would call it, at GE Appliances. And, you know, back in the 1990s, that literally meant walking in and Xeroxing, taking something off of the printer and then, you know, creating 100 copies and slipping it under a number of executive, executives' doors. And as, as I was walking around the first two days, I really felt like, what did I get myself into? Like, is this what I studied, you know, econ and the different things for and statistics and I remember stopping by one of the leaders at that point, and I just asked him a simple question. I'm like, what do you do with this? And at that point, the business, you know, the, you know, the leader, the sales leader took me through the report and showed me all the numbers. And he suggested at the time, he's like, the next time you drop it off, can you help me underline, you know, some of the key things that I look at or just comment it so I can get there quickly. And at that moment, that really taught me that finance can feel basic. It can feel bean counting, or it's an opportunity to really nourish the business. And being able to go and provide information, not just data, 
to understand how business leaders think. I would say that's something that really carried and shaped me for you know a big chunk of my career from that point forward. Um, the second piece that I would say, or the second part of my journey was really, you know, after going through the leadership program and different things, I remember sitting down um, and I got my first full-fledged divisional CFO role within GE at that time, GE Water. And the first thing across my desk was actually a really significant accounting problem. And I remember I had to call my leader, um, my the, kind of the, the CFO that was that was ahead of the entire um, segment at that time. And man, I was so nervous to just talk about the facts because I always felt like my first job is to give bad news. And I was nervous about it. And I did not articulate it the way I wanted. I didn't really treat it like a business issue. I almost treated it with some amount of fear. And I remember leaving that call and, you know, just feeling really crappy about it. And then at the end of it, I, you know, I was going and getting some advice from one of my mentors and they said, well, your job is to help the business face reality. And then from that point on, be very factual about it and help navigate and be a partner in navigating through whatever the problem may be. Um, and I would say that's a second role of a CFO that I had to learn trial by fire and I failed the first time in my mind. But it was something that became really, you know, that instilled within me, like as I went forward from that point forward, from from that point on. And then the last one is probably the last series of experiences where I stepped out of finance. And when you're inside the finance role and you're looking out at the business, it's very interesting compared to when you're in a in a customer role or in an operational role, staring back into finance. So I was. You know, I was I led into the technology um, for shared services and finance, and then I became the customer success officer here at, at UiPath. Both of those roles took me as far away from finance as you can get. Um, it was either about systems and ERP migrations, which has some synergy, or was talking to customers directly. I didn't look at a number. And when I reflect back, I never, I don't think I ever had a full perspective. I was a finance person working in business. I wasn't a business person working in finance. And I, th I think those were opportunities I missed earlier in my career because I was so insulated by the walls of finance. And that was something that, you know, by coming out of it and seeing how the world works um, outside of the numbers, outside of the pacing and, and, you know, quarterly rhythms, it really instilled with me a greater passion of being more relevant in shaping strategy as well as having an impact on the end customer and keeping that into account on a lot of the decisions and choices we made. All right. Now, you were there at GE nearly 20 years, was it? Yeah, it was coming around 20 just before I decided to leave. Okay. And that uh, sort of customer uh, success chapter, did that happen towards the very end of your GE career? Or? No, that was my first role within UiPath. So actually what happened is after my divisional CFO job for GE Water, um, our CFO at the time, a really great um, finance leader, Jeff Bornstein, who um, I, I, I got to learn a, a lot from, he, he actually asked me to be the CIO for finance and shared services. So I reported to our finance leader, our CIO and our shared service team, and I was on the CFO council. Um, and so in that role as CIO, I had big data in our AI. Um, I had ERPs, the ERP strategy for the company. And then one of one of the roles, one of the parts of the responsibility was RPA, robotic process automation. UiPath was my vendor. I was their customer. And I got close to the company at that time. And I really developed a passion for technology and automation. And so I met our founder, Daniel Dines, one day, um, and he asked me to join the company. I thought it would be within a finance role. And then, you know, he, he actually said, I want you to be in customer success because our customer is CFOs. And CIOs go out and show them how to use the technology and lead a team to really make RPA relevant to companies. Interesting. Okay. Uh, interesting transition there. Now, um, I just want to take a step back with you. Uh, when you first, there were a number of different CFO roles that you held within GE. And I'm curious, it looks like you got to your first uh, CFO role within 10 years of your time there. Is that roughly about right? Yep, that's about right. And there was a leadership development program. It sounds like you got 
on that track fairly early on? Or how did that happen within GE? And for those of us who aren't familiar with the program, maybe you can just share a little more detail about that. Yeah, I would say the hallmark of GE is are the leaders that it produced, like fantastic leaders, which I continue to be in awe of, you know, to this day. Um, leaders like Dan Janke, leaders like um, Brian Davies, you know, just really great operating leaders. Dave Calhoun, who's the CEO of Boeing today. Um, they, basically, the track, a very common track is a postgraduate, they have a program called Financial Management Program, FMP. It's a two-year rotational program. The idea of that is you take different classes, so you learn foundational finance um, concepts, and you actually get to see in quick bursts, six months into one part of the business, six into another, six into another. So six months at a time. So I, in my first two years, I got to see FP&A, um, sales, commercial finance, manufacturing finance, and sourcing. So that was really a great burst. And then after that, you, if you have the opportunity to join something called the corporate audit staff. And it's their internal audit function, but the corporate audit staff for GE is actually was, is kind of like hailed as one of the greatest factory of leadership um, that is out there. You get different experiences going and auditing the company. So you learn core technical um, responsibilities, but within two years, you're managing teams, much like consulting world, uh, the consulting world. But I would say even at a far more intense level, that really prepares you. And after four years, if you kind of make it through there, you are essentially put on an executive track. And the idea is that you've demonstrated that you have athletic ability, and then it's time to give you game time experience. And so I was really fortunate um, to have made it through that. And so I got my first set of experiences early, even if at that time I wasn't fully qualified, they took a bet. And through that, the combination of kind of getting athletic ability through these programs, athletic training, so to speak, and then the core deep experience of those first roles is, is really what has shaped my entire career. You mentioned you went to a mentor, and I and I'm sure you had mentoring throughout your career at G. It's one of the things that they're also famous for. But can you give us some sense? Did you have a a, a mentor from the day you you stepped into GE? Uh, was it that defined, or how would you describe it? Well, they did, I mean, they have mentorship programs, but what what was really good, and I would say, is for every organization, is I was lucky to be surrounded by leaders who didn't need a program to take interest in you. Like we all talk about mentorship programs and formalizing it, but the greatest mentors were the ones who just, just kind of just embraced me like I was just, you know, I was theirs. No one had to tell them. Um, and I got, I was really lucky to have that connection. And even in moments when I didn't know how to use that connection, they would call and talk to me. To this day, I'll get pinged by, or, you know, texted by some of my, some of my old leaders in GE checking in on me. How are things going? And if I need them, they're a text, they're a text or a ping away. Um, so those those leaders actually came organically. They came in terms of taking an interest when they saw somebody who's working hard or their passion. And there's times when they started off not as my mentor. Like I had probably four or five of them. Some of them started off as like my worst nightmare, like people who are the toughest on me. Um, and then you just kind of grow and you get to the next experience and you reflect and you're like, wow, that person was actually developing me. They were, they were helping me and you'd call them up and you know, you keep that connection and there was never a grudge between anybody. So I was really fortunate to see that. One last uh, observation I, I'm curious about, I wanted to make, um, it seems that the, uh, the economic downturn, um, the meltdown that we experienced back in 2008, 2009, uh, you go into that as a finance manager, a senior manager, you come out of that as a leader, it looks like to me, which is interesting. By 2010, you're, you're in, a, in a CFO role. Have you ever looked, thought about that before? It looked like you went into the crisis and you, you, it, you came out a leader. Uh, is there any relevance to that or is that just? It wasn't a conscious thing. Like No one said you've made it through this, so let's promote you you're shaped usually through your toughest times. And the, the business that I was a part of was a series of acquisitions. It was, it was called GE water. It was, there's parts of GE that have been with the company for 50, 60, 70 years. And then, you know, this part of the company GE water was new. I think the first, you know, the first acquisition was 
you know, early 2000s, just around that time in a significant way. So it, it had to be introduced into GE. It didn't have like, you know, that foundation of 40 years being a part of the company. And it went through a lot of struggles. You know, expectations were really high. It under delivered under under delivered on them. And I would say going through those tough times and being loyal, sticking with it, being positive, keeping belief. I would say those are the things that weren't conscious. But if I look back, they were the elements of the leadership team that carried the company through the next wave of the crisis. And, you know, you, you made me reflect on it now as we're going through a crisis today. And a lot of people, they get nervous about their place in a business or in an organization or the well-being. And of course, you have to take care of your families. But often, if you stick through the toughest times with a company, it's, it's going to be the most rewarding. And I, I kind of look back on different phases now that you mentioned it, Jack, and I can reflect and sincerely say that. We want to uh, talk about robotic process automation. RPA is something we're hearing a great deal about these days. Uh, but first, uh, fill us in. What was this opportunity then that you saw at UiPath? Tell us about this company. What does it do exactly? And what sets it apart from its competitors out there? So UiPath is it's a, it's, it's a relatively new company. Um, you know, it, it just kind of it would, had $3 million of revenue less than um, less than five years ago. And, you know, we crossed $400 million of revenue just recently. Um, and so it really has experienced hyper growth at a state that I've never seen. Um, the first thing is, let me just describe what it is. So RPA, so hyper automation is a, plat, is a, is a term kind of across the world right now um, that is being told, that is going to be talked about. But RPA in specific, if you think about robotic process, it's, it's software automation that helps to mimic human actions. And in doing so, it takes basic tasks that are mundane, that can be lower of lower value, and it automates them. And the mission of it is to actually, actually allow people to take roles and to do things that have a higher impact in the organization. So as something as simpler as data data entry, that can be done by a software robot. Um, the great thing about RPA is that it's not specific to finance. It is actually applicable to any task across a company, which is one of the reasons why it has such a broad adoption across, you know, across the industry today and why the revenue growth has been there. What attracted me to the opportunity, I would say, was... I met Daniel at one of our conferences and I had dinner with him shortly after. And he talked, you know, in GE, it's as, as a hallmark of a company as it is, it often talks about metrics in a really kind of like near-term way. When I was talking to Daniel, who's a founder, he was talking about shaping an industry, shaping a way of working for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And he was really passionate about the product and his priority was growth. And just given the circumstances for a GE at the time, our priority was cost. And so between kind of, by being able to take the foundation out of GE, I kind of sat in front of a, a person who I consider, you know, a, a visionary person who's built something from nothing. And in listening to how he thought about the company, about how deeply he cared about the technical merits of the product, and the future being about growth and shaping, those were things that I never got to experience. Those are the things you kind of hope to experience. And it was an opportunity I could not pass up. You know, you're not the obvious candidate, though. And, and correct me, I'll play devil's advocate here. Why not go to uh, the venture community's favorite portfolio of CFOs? people who have scaled companies one after another, after another in sort of this hyper growth space, not the seasoned GE executive. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what do you think of my question? No, it's a great question. I would say there's always some luck and being in the right, you know, being in a particular place. I never want to say the right place other, but being in a particular place at a particular time. At that moment where UiPath was, I actually was not, I asked Daniel, should I, do you want me to be in finance? Do you want me to be the CFO? He actually put me in customer success first. And his rationale was go out and show other, to show CFOs and CIOs how to use the product. 
how to build an automation operation within their organization to think differently about the way they use finance. In doing so, my first you know, my first two years at the company here had, was heavily invested in our customer, in our product. So you kind of look at it and you say, you know, then we, we went through a series of changes last year. And you kind of say, hey, I have uh, the ability to now understand our product and our customer. And I have this foundation of finance. It became a logical fit. I really believe that if I went, if, if you took my resume at GE, if I stayed with GE, and you, my resume went across a desk of Daniel today for the role of CFO, I think he would look at it and put it to the side, rightfully so, because he would do exactly what you what you mentioned, Jack. So part of it is, you know, you never know which way the path leads you. And the path just happened to lead me back into the role that I'm in. It took me through customer operations, but I had to take that risk of getting out of my comfort zone, out of GE, out of finance for a period of time. And I got something I probably would never have gotten if I did not take this path. So just as you described, you said that Daniel uh, saw that you might be the person who could help uh, CFOs uh, begin understanding the potential of uh, robotic process automation. You, and I'm wondering what exactly, as you had those conversations with customers, as you stepped in and faced another CFO, what is the light bulb you're trying to help uh, you know, go off? What is the, uh, uh, what are you trying to open their mind to? What are you trying to change? Are they too set in, in terms of how they think about their business and you have to help them look into the future and understand better how this technology is going to change what they do and their organization does? I, I, I imagine that's something. Uh, yeah, but yes and no. I would say most of the customers we deal with are, they, they have a vision. What the disconnect in software, like every CFO today is digital transformation. You, you kind of put it on to, if you Google it, you'll find more articles than you have time reading in an entire year if you devoted yourself to just that subject. Um, what, what I think happens is a lot of software or technical IT people, you know, where they miss the discussion with the CFO is, there's a great vision, there's a promise of technology, but making it connect to the foundation that a CFO knows and understands is something that is not easily bridged. If you go and you say, hey, you know, you can automate your closing process and shrink it down, you know, by one day, two days. Every CFO, rightfully so, will look at you and say, all right, you're the 75th person who's told me I spent $20 million experimenting on different promises. Why are you different? And what I would say is, and I don't think I do this perfectly, I say it with all humility, it's easier to have that discussion if you can talk specifics. If you can go and say, hey, I lived, I walked in your shoes. You know, during closing, when you have to book this journal entry and at the same time, somebody is uploading documents and downloading invoices and that all takes 30 minutes, but really you want them to spend those 30 minutes looking at that entry to make sure it makes sense, to make sure it's the right business, it ties with the business, but they don't have that time because they're clicking away. If you can connect it into use cases, CFOs, the light, it's not about the light bulb going off, it's about showing them like a real room to put that light bulb in. And so I, I would say that's kind of what my role has been. I never wanna say I enlightened anybody on CFOs because frankly, they enlightened me much more in the ways that are there. My goal is just to make it really practical in a no BS way. So we want to ask you about your team and the finance function and whether as you come aboard, there was something that you did to move your team in the direction you want it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just, I was at, I was talking to my team, one of my team members about this um, just, just recently I would say we were reflecting on our journey and we've come a long way. I'm like, how did we even start? You know, and it, I would say the two, the two things they, t they talked to me about and I reflect and I, I would say it's kind of a, it's a subconscious thing is first starting on basics. What are the basic things we need to come in every day and accomplish? Make it very fact driven. 
we need to be able to understand, have an accurate view of the ins and outs of our cash. And I set up operating mechanisms to literally sit there until we understood it. And I stayed in the trenches with them. I tried not to make it a PowerPoint culture where, hey, next week I'd like you to present to me, you know, the ins and outs of the cash. Let's sit down tomorrow and walk me through and take me through some of the transactions. How should we build this model? I really wanted to make myself as much a part of the team within a set of basics and operating principles that are there. The second thing, and I would say this is something that I, I really believe in, is I don't, we have a chief strategy officer. His name is Vadiga Moyad. He's a really, you know, he's a, he's a very kind of, he's a person that always, I love his metaphors. He talks about different methods of leadership. And in one method, he talks about, you know, kind of a star leadership and you have so much gravity, everybody circles around you. And then there's another method in which you're kind of bringing people together into a cluster. And, and a cluster is probably um, not the, it starts off literally metaphorically as a cluster, but it do, are people connected about what each other's do? So if, if, if the team relies on me to connect the dots, to me, that's failed. They should understand what the chief accounting officer's organization does, what the treasury's organization does, and what are the connection points. So I spent a lot of time in the beginning figuring out what the, helping people see the connection points between the different organizations. Why that was important in getting to the overall direction is because the most often tripping block that you have is finger pointing. Can't do this. We don't have accurate data. Can't do this. The books aren't closed on time for me. When you connect the dots, it actually moves faster in a direction because it removes the speed bumps of perception or misinformation. You, uh, I, I'm curious just to try to get a sense. You, you uh, shared with us the remarkable growth that the company's experienced over the five years, last five years. So you took us back, I think. You only arrived sort of two years ago, and you're you're boarding this this uh, fast growing rocket ship. Let's say. Um, you come in, do they have an FP&A group? Do they have an FP&A? Are there certain key hires that you have to make and get into place? What, what would you tell us? Um, they had a really solid foundation. So, I, you know, um, when you're growing at that speed, there's always things that could be done better because of the pace at which you have to build. I actually openly walked in the door before I walked through the doors. I was kind of like, oh my gosh, what am I going to walk into? When you open the doors, you're like, oh, they have an ERP. Wow, they have a travel policy. Wow, they have a way of forecasting. Our The team that was here for the last two to three years, you know, the three years that were preceding me, I actually give them a lot of credit on the foundation that they built. Um, it was really remarkable. The question that you, you, you kind of ask yourself, whether that was in the customer success role or in the CFO role, is what are the next building blocks that are required. So they had an FP&A function. Now the question is, hey, do we have a way of connecting the metrics to the operating team, right? We were producing metrics, but was there operational accountability for delivering on those metrics to understand it, which means who's responsible for what metric? You know, do they understand, are they able to, are, do they feel accountable every day when they walk into it? So it was just, it was more building on the foundation than plugging holes. I, I, would all, I would always tell people who go into a company that's in a hyper growth phase, do not criticize things that you see as missing. Because the answer is, it's not missing. It is just lagging slightly the growth curve in which you're in, which by the way, is a great problem to have. It is a great problem to say, Hey, we went from a billion dollar company or a hundred million dollar company to a seven billion dollar company in three years. Operating a seven billion dollar company is different. So you do need to go and kind of advance the metrics, advance some of the roles, but you it's never a criticism. It wasn't something missing at that moment. And so if I thought what was missing, you know, if I thought the, the next thing that needed to be built, it was really around operational accountability around the core metrics. And the most and the basic metrics, cash flow forecasting, um, you know, revenue forecasting, accountability structures of profitability. Those were the things that I feel like we developed kind of over the last couple of years. 
When you think about uh, the developing or the focus, the increased focus you put on those metrics, did you achieve that? And and this is just good management style, perhaps, and this might reveal something about yourself. I mean, wh- was there a, a regular meeting where you'd make a point of bringing up the you know this particular metric? Uh, was there a dashboard that you decided needed to be redesigned so it would emphasize a particular metric that you uh, just realized needed to be talked about or just exposed more to the organization? Anything like that? Yeah, it, it happens as a phase two, though, Jack. And maybe like you know, there'll be people who agree or disagree. I think if you walk in on the day on day one and you start instituting rhythms and instituting org changes and instituting change, you kind of um, lose the trust of the organization pretty fast. So actually, the first steps was just connecting with people, talking to them understanding the problems. And I didn't do it in a rhythm. I did it more informally. I would pick up the phone and say, hey, I saw this this, this presentation you told me. I don't really understand this. Can you take me through it? Do you mind sending me the data? I want to dig through that. When you have Dennis Dammerman, who was the old CFO of GE, he, he actually had a beautiful line. He said, to be creative, you must first be credible. And, and I actually found that really enlightening for me And so credibility amongst a team is that you understand them. You understand at least your starting point well enough before you propose changes. Phase two kind of got into the mode where we instituted the rhythms. So just actually the last four months, we started one finance rhythm weekly. It's the one meeting that does not change. Even if it gets shortened, it's on that time. And at that moment, we go through the core metrics. The entire team is on. It's not me and three people. It's an extended team of maybe 12 or 15. It's one over ones. And the reason is because everybody should have insight into what are the questions being asked? How do you set the tone for this, right? So once for me, that those rhythms and everything, the dashboards comes after, you first get a little bit more consensus of your starting point and have agreement on, oh, this is foundational. These are the connection points across the team. When the team is connected and grounded, rhythms are productive. If they are disconnected, rhythms can often devolve to success theater or defensive sessions. And that's kind of, that's been my approach in terms of how I started down that road. Many of the finance leaders we speak to today in the SaaS realm uh, will uh, explain to us how they're trying to better measure the pipeline. And they've begun to look at the pipeline in, uh, more incrementally. Uh, and they've been able to measure so they can understand uh, how long it'll take to close uh, a sale or orders will close and what have you. Is that part of your world or not really? Um, it is in the sense of it's a really key variable as we're doing our analysis, our budgeting, our planning, our forecasting. In the SaaS world, which was a little bit different than the industrial world, there's an organization called sales operations. And sales operations for me in the industrial world was kind of like pushing paper, you know, deal desk type um, things or, or pushing transactions through the system. Valuable but it wasn't as forward looking. It was really kind of more factory oriented. Um, Sales operations within the SaaS world is actually very strategic. Um, They they work very close with the sales leaders and the sales team and pipeline management, sales productivity are a core part of what they they look at. So the, the, the partnership between finance and sales ops is critical. So I have a really great commercial finance leader. Her name is Sarah Alper. We have a really good, um, a really fantastic sales operations leader, Ryan Wilcox. We're kind of one team. And looking at the pipeline, we actually work together on the right analytics to do two outcomes. The first is predictability. And the second one is operational effectiveness. Are we generating enough pipeline? That should talk to our marketing leads. That should talk to, you know, the the sales team. Are they, are they going and spending enough time connecting with customers to generate pipeline. Those are connected. And so we stay, we stay very close together on those metrics. I want to touch on, uh, and you mentioned already the, the, uh, the environment out there, the pandemic is still, of course, part of our worlds. Uh, can you tell us about uh, how you as a finance leader 
what you might have done, what steps you've taken to manage the business under these circumstances? Yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's so recent. And I would say um, we're speaking here on June 15th, and I'd still say we're not out of it, which I think is means we're still managing it. So I think this is a this is the a, a continuing and an evolving story. The first thing that we really did is we sat down and we had to take some really strong positions to say, are we defensive or are we neutral? And we took the posture that we have to obviously first protect the company from a cash standpoint, and we did a lot of scenario planning. And I don't mean scenario planning that stretched weeks or months. Scenario planning that were compact in a day or two. What if our customers stop paying us? What if our revenue is down 30%, 40%, 50%? What does that mean for our cash balance? And especially in kind of a, a software, private company, SaaS, you know, startup, cash flow is the most important thing. So we immediately took steps to lower our discretionary spend. And we, we our first thought was not going to impact employees. It was really making the company stronger and increasing our immunity by reducing our discretionary spend, which could be immediate. You can tell people to stop traveling immediately, not just for finance, but for safety. Um, you, can, you can go and we have a number of places that have like flexible leases. We can cancel those leases fast. We can push out some of our you know, some of our key projects and, and, and we can stagger them a little bit more. So that was the first piece. And I would say the greatest lesson of that is take action where you can fast, fast. If you can impact something quickly, do it quickly. And that was something that we did. Don't wait for it, assuming you can turn it off later, because you actually start protecting from taking the harder decisions and being more thoughtful about it. The second thing we started doing is we, we did the scenario planning around our employee base. And at that time, we actually felt we were reasonably well-sized. But what, what our CEO kind of said, he's like, Ashim, I don't want to do anything for, I remember us having not an argument, but this is a, one of my learnings from him was I was like, hey, we got to go and think about, you know, cost now. He's like, nope, we have to think about what makes business sense. And so we sat down and we said, what changes in COVID? you know, in the pandemic world. And so we had to go and look at organizations and say, you know, hey, we, we're probably not going to do, you know, in-person events. <clears throat> so we had to think differently about how we go to market in different places. Our customer demand actually increased and people were now more willing to do remote work, work um, engagements with us. So we're like, hey, our partners need our support. Um, to support our customer, meaning implementation partners. So we doubled down and said, here's where we want to invest. <coughs> Pardon me. So I think that that, that was kind of how we had, it did our, we, we really said, how would it impact our business? And then took measures based on the business impact to say, what are the right actions from there on some of the harder decisions? Do you have a, as far as when you expect a recovery uh, to happen, perhaps, early next year. What, uh, is there any read or economic indicators that you're relying on to help uh, you make that judgment? You know, we, we divide it instead of broad base. Like it depends where you look on the market, our internal discussions. I wouldn't say where I, I want no one to like take our economic word for it is, you know, there are industries that we look at as a very long time to recover. Um, we look at events as a long time to recover travel and entertainment as a long time to recover. We look at other, other bases like healthcare as the recovery actually means capacity expansion. Um, it, I don't want to say it's an opportunity, but their challenges, you know, if, if some of our largest customers are in the insurance space, there's so much activity over there. So we look at that and say, that is probably near term. Okay. The industrial companies or, you know, banking in all those areas, I would say we kind of think that until there is a vaccine, like a viable view to a vaccine, we would look at it, you know, in a down case or in an uncertain case, in a best case scenario, um, it's flat. And that's kind of the way we've segmented the market is short term consumer, 
um, and travel, kind of those industries that are impacted, the, uh, you know, the, the core areas that would expand and then the core areas that are just uncertain until an economy stables. I would say, you know, the events are a good leading indicator. If people start getting back together on business events, that's probably somewhat of a return to norm if that happens, which means we kind of look at this as at least another year. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, jump to our finance strategic moment question. This is where we ask finance leaders once more to look back and try to identify just one of the many uh, moments where their lines of sight into the organization allowed them to uh, either move their team in a new direction, the organization in a new direction, or maybe avoid a risk, whatever it may have been. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, I would say um, it was actually during the the economic crisis of 2008, um, 2009. And the natural movement was we were all sitting there and we're like, okay, we're cutting. It's it's cut. And I remember being on a CFO roundtable because I was kind of a new executive. And our CFO of GE at that time said, there are places we are investing investing in our customers to help their survival. That coming from a CFO to me was a very strategic moment in terms of finance people are notorious for cutting cost, right? For being very conservative. And I would say being a great investor is often the area of finance that is most underlooked at the CFO position. In venture capitals, it's front and center. But if you are a CFO, being a great investor, both in hard times as well as in good times, was probably the thing, was a strategic moment that I think shaped it. And finance's voice in those moments is very powerful. And, and that's something that I would say has continued to work, whether it's investment in technology that I got to do in my role as the CFO for G Water. We were a low operating margin business. We invested in technology and we improved our bottom line tremendously, you know, or whether it is investing today in certain parts of our organization, like customer success, like our go to market organization or like engineering as an early, as kind of a late stage startup, the investments we make today are going to yield huge benefits. And I think being a great investor is something that I would say is, is definitely, you know, that moment and then that learning from there really, really hits home for me. When we return, CFO Ashim Gupta enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Hello, we're with Ashim Gupta, CFO of UiPath, and we're entering the mentoring round. We'd like to begin by asking you to think back to that first time you stepped into a CFO role, Ashim. This is where, for the first time, you had all the responsibilities of finance leadership. You weren't just going to a CFO to share insights. You were the person people were coming to. What If you could go back in time and uh, to that first week or that first quarter, you were in that role. Is there something you would tell yourself? Is there something about having all that responsibility that surprised you and you would have done better with a little piece of advice? What would that have been? Yeah, it's probably the same advice I would give myself today because I'm far from perfect on this. This was, I'd still say my greatest weakness is listen more. 
I think the, the 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 more the more you go up, you have people looking for you to an answer, or at least you perceive that you should have answers. Um, seeking the answer is probably your is the larger responsibility of a leadership position. I would say I failed pretty consistently on this for a big chunk of my career. I get incrementally better, but I would say that is probably the advice I wish somebody just hammered into my head more and more. And actually on reflection, I think they did. I think it was me coming to that realization of what it needed to be. So I would say that was that would be one. And if I am just offered a second, it would be to go out and be with customers. I, I, finance can be way too much of an insulated job. And no one really gave me this advice in a finance world. It is a highly internally focused organization. And you lose as an investor, if you want to be a great investor, if you want to be a great business person in a finance role, you have to go and meet with customers. You have, you have to get over that insecurity and it will inform you to be a better CFO. It'll be a, inform you to be a better leader, a better business and operational partner. Shim, we like to ask a uh, sort of a personal question, which is to have uh, our guests reflect a little bit on their personal habits and their daily routines. If there's something, some part of your day, something you do, you personally do, uh, to and in some way it's contributed to your professional success. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I would say um, I, I block one hour for myself. It's called a shim time, and it literally is where I just think. And so I, I, I've carried that forward in a different way. I used to be like back to back to back to back meetings. And a, one of the best leaders I've ever witnessed, I didn't get to work with him directly, but his, one of his um, people was my, my leader. His name was John Kernicki and the leader was Dan Jenke, who was my manager. They said, if you print out your calendar in the last 30 days, and then you Think about the next 30 days, how you want to spend your time. Reflect on what you want to do differently and how many of your days are back to back and how much time are you giving yourself to think in between meetings. And whenever my days are back to back, I am a reactive leader. I react to the next meeting. I react to what people say. When I give my brain some time to just stop, stop like on the hamster wheel, and prepare. What do I want to get out of this meeting? You know, how do I want people to feel leaving that meeting? I am a much better leader for it, um, for those times. So time management and the opportunity and the, the ability to think is probably, the, you know, that routine, I would say, or that habit of 15 minutes in between meetings or in a one hour break for sure. Those are things I would say have dramatically helped me in my best days. Is there a book you'd recommend? Doesn't have to be a business book, but uh, something you'd recommend to other finance leaders? Or there is a book right now that my my current CEO recommended as we were talking about Indian philosophy and Western philosophy. But it is written um, it is written, I, I believe, by a Czechoslovakian. I can't say their last name really well, but it's called Flow, and it's the psychology of an optimal experience, and it basically talks about how to live the world, how your daily lives and experience, how to make it conscious, happy, to have what they describe as flow. Um, meaning it, it flow is like smooth, it's moving, it's not like turbulent. And the reason why I would recommend it is part of our jobs as leaders is to provide that optimal experience to our customers, our partners, and our team members. And unless we ourselves are kind of feeling it or understand how to provide that flow, we can't do it effectively. And it's a very enlightening book. And, you know, there's lines in there that are good for life, but it's also good for corporate leadership. And I don't think it was intended for corporate leaders, but it's a really good book that is highly applicable. Okay. Well, it, we haven't had it before, so we're always happy to have a new selection for us. We're, we're up to our final question, I'm afraid. We've enjoyed this, so thank you, Ashim. But first, 
The final question is, we ask you to look forward for us over the next 12 months and share your priorities. What would they be as a finance leader, of course? Yeah, um, our, I would say our goal is to start becoming, we've done a great job of becoming you know, good at the current quarter. We need to start becoming good as a finance team of understanding and influencing the next two or three quarters. And I don't think that is far away. Um, so the way that I would look at it is your question on pipeline. Do we understand what our pipeline is? Do we understand our customers' buying behaviors so that we can model and predict things efficiently? That's kind of one really big priority for me. The second one is around digital, is, is around data science and, and digital. So we're a newer company. Um, we were not we're not, we don't have like hundreds of years of data pent up that we can put in and start getting experience, but building the foundation of a truly integrated data um, environment to feed automation and to inform us on a real time basis is important. That means more than just a fancy dashboard that is true information and using data science to be predictive to understand correlation of different variables. And then the third one is a little bit more mundane. It's career paths. Um, I would say being a new organization, like our average tenure of a UiPath employee in finance, maybe nine months, 10 months. Over the next year, people will be here and they're going to start asking, okay, what's my next step? How do I grow? How do I develop? And in a startup world, we take, we take I, GE that was just ingrained in the system. Here, it's something that we have to nurture, develop, think about and really see how we can be leaders of the next levels of business. So those would be my three that I would that I would put out there. Ashim uh, Gupta, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks so much, Jack. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.